So can you tell me a little bit about For All Moonkind? Absolutely. It's a uh, it's an entirely volunteer organization. Um, we have a lot of lawyers from around the world. We have um, engineers and physicists, and we have space archaeologists. So I know that you think about uh, some people think space lawyers are kind of a thing of the future. Space archaeologists were a real surprise for me. Welcome to the Astro Esquire podcast. I am your host, Nathan Johnson, and in each episode, I interview professionals in space law and policy to try and find out exactly what that means. First, a disclaimer. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast do not represent the views or opinions of any of my past, present, or future employers or clients. Today, I am joined by Michelle Hanlon. Hi, I'm Michelle Hanlon, and I am a professor of space law, um, air and space law at the University of Mississippi School of Law, associate director of the Center for Air and Space Law at the University of Mississippi, and co-founder of For All Moonkind, a nonprofit organization dedicated to preserving our heritage in outer space. Michelle, it is so exciting to have you on the podcast. I've been looking forward to this interview for a while, and um, I think this might be one of my first themed or thematic episodes uh, be coming up on the 50th anniversary of the Apollo landing. And I know that that is something that you have been focused on for a while now. So can you tell me a little bit about For All Moonkind? Absolutely. It's, a, uh, it's an entirely volunteer organization. Um, we have a lot of lawyers from around the world. We have um, engineers and physicists, and we have space archaeologists. So I know that you think about, uh, some people think space lawyers are kind of a thing of the future. Space archaeologists were a real surprise for me. Um, but these are people who are, who are dedicated to thinking about ways of protecting um, our history in space. Um, the we are really focused on the law, the law part of it, um, and moving into the protective actual enforcement of it. But um, what we're trying to do is to get the international community to agree that and to recognize that we have heritage in space, um, that all of our first footsteps in space from Luna 2, which is celebrating its 60th anniversary in September, um, to Apollo 11, to Apollo 17, to U-2, and um, these are all historic technological achievements for humankind and something that the entire human species ought to rally around and embrace as an achievement. And so For All Mankind is really looking to um, find that universality and, and get it recognized by everybody um, around the world. And, and one way to do that is to um, create a convention on um, heritage, in uh, pr protecting and preserving heritage in outer space. And that, that's our ultimate goal. Excellent. So over the course of this conversation, let's, let's provide this with uh, some context for people who may not uh, understand why your effort is necessary in the first place, what gaps you are trying to address. Um, and let me start by asking, because you, you brought it up already, uh, you talked about space lawyers. So do you consider yourself to be a space lawyer? Absolutely. I wear the, I wear the name uh, title and title proudly. I am a space lawyer. It's what I call myself on LinkedIn. It's what I call myself um, whenever I speak to anybody or introduce myself to somebody. And I, I know that one of the questions that you, that you seek to answer is what does it really mean to be a space lawyer? Um, 
To me, being a space lawyer means thinking about how we are going to move our species off this planet. My, my focus as a space lawyer is to, to do whatever we can, create whatever regulations we need, um, pr- create whatever framework we need, produce that framework that will help us get into space and not, not as a warring nations or competitive nations, but as one species to explore space. So to me, space law means sort of runs the gamut from um, working with startup companies and startups that, that are looking to somehow harness space resources, whether it's on orbit or on an asteroid or on the moon, um, helping them get through the red tape in Washington to get licenses and so forth talking to regulators and administrators to figure out what regulations we need. I mean, we, we're going through such an exciting exciting time right now where all of our regulations are pretty much going through revisions. Um, and so it's a great time to be either a lawyer or involved in the space industry and actually have a say in what these, what these regulations might look like. And then also there's the international piece. Um, I'm not, a, I, my background is in um, M&A law. I was a, a corporate lawyer for 25 years before I uh, became a space lawyer. Um, but the, the public international aspect of it is probably the most interesting. And, um, and that's figuring out how to get people around the world to come together um, in respect of space. In the 60s and 70s, we, ha- we came up with four treaties that everybody agreed with and ratified, or not everybody ratified, but were largely um, ratified. We haven't had an enforceable agreement since then uh, regarding um, space or space issues or space matters. We've had a lot of soft law um, guidelines and recommendations, but no enforceable treaties. And, and now is the time as a space lawyer to help these nations come together. They come together all the time at the Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space. There's a lot of unity there, but we need to take it one step further. And so for me, that's what space law means. It's all of those issues wrapped up in one. Um, and I think, you know, if... if if you are take any piece of that, then you can consider yourself a space lawyer. Wow. So we've had a lot of people on this podcast that have arrived at their practice in space law via very different routes. So I, I want to get to that question with you right off the bat. How did you get interested in space law? Is it something that predates your practice in corporate law, or is it something that came about later after you had already started practicing? It's a, it's a really interesting question. I think, um, you know, when I, when I look back, my whole life has been, has had space in it. Um, my father was an amateur rocket scientist. Um, he eventually became a diplomat, but he, um, he has always, uh, had space stuff around space books, um, astronomical books. He had telescopes growing up, Wanted to be an astronaut. I think everybody did. I hope everybody wanted to be an astronaut when they were little. Um, but and and Star Trek. You know, Star Trek was a mainstay of our of our lives growing up. Um, I you know I think that uh, when I realized I couldn't be an astronaut, um, I I, kept, I put space in the background. It you know it was something that always interested me. You know, I watched every shuttle launch, so forth. Um, but I, it, I didn't realize it was something I could actually pursue as a lawyer, or I didn't really think about it, or, or you know, frankly, maybe I was more concerned about paying for law school than I was about pursuing, you know, my actual interest. 
Um, I really enjoyed my my corporate law career. I had a lot of fun. I, I'm one of those nerds who just really loves contract law and and the um, the way contracts work and how important words are. Um, but the um, you know it, it it gets it gets old. Um, Twenty five years. But I think the real turning point, and I, I hate to say it because it sounds so smarmy, but my son uh, is an aerospace engineer. When he went to college, he started doing research. He started building um, satellites, cube satellites. And I was reading his research and proofing it for him and thinking, God, he is, he is on to something here. This stuff is fascinating. And, and he's right. You know, he wants to mine asteroids. He's right. This is where the future of humanity is. And um, and just in talking to him and thinking about, well, what, what can I do as a lawyer to get involved in space? And he said, Mom, you know, I know that there's an issue with respect to property in space. I want to mine asteroids. You're a pretty good lawyer. Do you think you can figure it out by the time I get out of the Navy? And I was like, sure, I can do that. <laughs> so I went to I went to McGill with the with hell bent on. Uh, figuring out the property issues in space so that my son can mine asteroids and make lots of money. There's an interesting difference between the way you finish that sentence, that you figure out a way to make money, but then you also started off talking about the sort of goal of For All Moonkind, which is to preserve um, preserve our artifacts and our history in outer space. Some people sometimes see those two things in conflict with each other, right? So some people want uh, space to be absolutely preserved and keep, you know, keep the companies out of it. Um, and, you know, other people are like, well, we should be making money to push ourselves out there. So do you reconcile those two things? Do you actually not see them as opposite sides of humanity's outreach into space? Oh, I absolutely see them um, going hand in hand. Um, at For All Moonkind, we, we like to talk about the management of our of our history, the management of our um, artifacts um, and these historic sites. You know, there are more than 100 sites on the moon right now that have uh, evidence of human activity. We don't need to preserve and protect and keep pristine all 100 of those sites. I think it's really, it's really important that development goes hand in hand with preservation of our history. And so, I mean, think about um, every time you build a road in the UK, it seems like they're, um, they uncover the remains of some other king. You know, that doesn't stop the building of the road. You, you pause and you um, memorialize what you need to, you take pictures, and then, and then you move on. And you think about uh, the Nubia um, Valley in Egypt, the Aswan High Dam was built, and Egypt knew that it was going to bury um, the, the Valley of Nubia and 3,000 temples, 3,000-year-old temples. Um, and instead of letting that happen, instead of saying, oh, we can't build the dam, the, the international community came together and helped Egypt move those piece by piece. This is in the 70s. Think about that technology. They moved these temples piece by piece out of that valley to protect what they could, to preserve the, um, one of the cradles of our civilization. And that's the way we see the development of space and space exploration. We need to get into space. We need to develop space. We need to mine the resources in space. I mean, this is this is the future of humanity. And and I don't mean that everyone is going to be living in a in a space colony or you know we don't say colony anymore space village. Um, it it means that we can we can harness space to help us here on Earth while we're also sending explorers out into space. Um, 
And so I really see this this moment in our lives, this moment in our human existence as the birth of our spacefaring civilization. And for that also, we really, it's so vital that we protect our history because when you talk about creating a village on the moon, one of the vital parts of it is is the sense of community. And that sense of community comes from our history. You know, I think anybody on earth will tell you those those first bipodal, the first footsteps, footprints, of humans walking on two feet, those belong to all of us. And those remind us of where we came from, you know, this plain in Lytoli, Tanzania. That, that's what we need to think about when we explore space. We have this tremendous opportunity to explore space and protect our history. So 3,000 years from now, 3 million years from now, we, our, our progeny won't be like, oh, where was that first blueprint? I don't know. We have to look for it. No, we're going to protect it for them. We're going to save them all that time. We're going to keep the, the, um, the, tra- the trails and tendrils of our civilization together so that we actually do go into space as a community and not just as miners or, again, competitive nations. And so I think when, when we talk about, when I talk about developing space, I do talk about asteroid mining and mining on the moon, but it has to go hand in hand with preservation and protection. Um, and again, it's not, it's not a preserve everything. It's let's let the experts in first to figure out what needs to be preserved, how we memorialize things, or, and what, what lots of things maybe we just take pictures of and then say, okay, there's water under there, go for it. Um, but that's that's the way I, I see development and preservation go hand in hand, just the way it does on Earth. We we've, we've made a lot of mistakes on Earth, but we have a lot of lessons to learn from. And so, and what better place than than the the canvas of this infinite canvas of space? So, talking about lessons learned, um, what was your involvement on an international scale during your corporate practice? Um, and what did you sort of learn, at least terrestrially, during that time about how we operate uh, between nations and across borders? So that's a really interesting question. I um, I did a lot of cross-border transactions. I worked with, uh, I did um, a lot of work on the, this is going to date me, um, the Brazil country manufacturing, the Bradyvilles. Um, and then I did a lot of um, Canadian and mostly um, South American and, and some UK um, mergers. Um, it, the, best, the best story I have is I, I was listing a, um, a security on the Luxembourg Stock Exchange. And in New York, you know, I was working for a big law firm in New York, and everything is just 24-7 really fraught. This was before um, email and everything was faxed or um, FedExed, and I um, I kept having to call the Luxembourg Stock Exchange to say, "Is it listed? Is it listed? Did you get this? Did you get that?" And the fellow on the other on the end of the line was just the loveliest, loveliest guy. Um, but the, I was at my you know my third all nighter of the week, and I said, "Is it listed?" And he said, "Oh dear." I, I, I seem to have lost all that paperwork and I just about died. <laughs> and then he started laughing and said, you have really got to lighten up. <laughs> it was like, <laughs> he was completely joking, but he, he was just like so amazed that about how we worked in New York, you know, to, to us in New York, it was just life. And, and I, I, I loved that. Like, 
he's here's this guy at the Luxembourg Stock Exchange, like looking at me like I'm a complete idiot, and I can't and I'm taking myself too seriously. And that that is that was such a great lesson to me is, you know, as you as you cross borders and as you work together, keep that humor and keep that humanity. You know, we're not we're not automatons, and you know, sure maybe someday robots will do the job of lawyers, but you know, it's it's that kind of the relate relating to each other that's really vital um, in any transaction, whether it's a private tra- private merger or or you know public policy transaction, you know keeping that humor and, and even if it's not humor but just the the kindness simple kindnesses, um, and I see it you know uh, for all kind is is honored to be a permanent observer at the committee on the peaceful uses of outer space. And we go, I make a point of being there because um, I consider it such an honor to have been given that um, observer status. I make sure that either I am there for every session of the um, science and technical committee, the legal subcommittee and the actual committee in June, um, or I have somebody there on my behalf. But you see it um, there. These people, these delegates relate to each other. Even, Even after you have huge arguments, on, on the um, on the floor, although you know it, 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 there's not been any not that I've seen any shoe banging or anything, but it gets pretty heated. But then you walk out of there and and you relate to each other, and that that to me is the most important thing is is remembering that we're all we're all humans and we all have emotions, and you know there's no reason to leave the leave that at, at you know outside the room. That should come into the room with you all the time. Have you found that the context of the work, going from corporate mergers and transactions to talking about space, uh, you know, might be two completely different sets of people, or it might just be that they're now talking about two different things, but does talking about space bring out something different in people? So uh, the, um, to me, the biggest uh, change going from corporate to space law uh, is the, the pace. Um, you know, everything we did, um, every time you do a deal, there's always a deadline. It has to get done. Um, you know, I was really naive when we formed For All Moonkind in, in July 2017. We said, we hope to be out of business in two years. We thought, you know, let's get this, let's get this deal done. Let's get this um, convention drafted. (laughs) (laughs) So this is what you think when you're, you know, a deal maker. Um, We'll, you know, we'll we'll have it done by the, by the 50th anniversary. Um, And that was a huge learning curve. Um, And uh, you know, you, that, that was sort of the biggest, jump for me. What I found um, going back and forth, literally there is no going back and forth. You know, the space community, the legal space community is so welcoming. Um, I've been embraced, you know, I'm lucky enough to be at the University of Mississippi now, um, which has such a tremendous tradition of of space law. Um, But there's there's no crossing back. When I talk to my former colleagues about the moon, their eyes glaze over. Um, when I talk to, even when I talk to my former colleagues, you know, about sending um, a young um, associate to get their LLM, to earn their LLM in space law, eyes glaze over. There's still this tremendous gap, I think, and lack of understanding and the part of most of the corporate world 
about what space really means and how important and vital it really is, both to our everyday existence and to our future. And that's something I'm really trying to um, bridge, both with For All Moonkind and through uh, my work at the University of Mississippi, because it's it's I, I think it's a fatal it's a it could be a fatal gap. I mean, we really need to get everybody in the world realizing how much space, uh, how much what the terrestrial benefits of space are both on an immediate basis um, and on, on an ongoing basis in terms of the development of products and, and processes and so forth. Let's go to some, some space law 101 um, and, and let's just try to step through it uh, briefly. So you talked about the treaties in the 1960s and 70s. You talked about the international community coming together at that point and having specific treaties and laws dealing directly with space. What did they decide 50 years ago that is causing these ambiguities for activities today? So for all moonkind, you're trying to protect those sites on the moon. Why aren't those sites automatically protected or why is their protection not universally identified? So there, there's two points. Um, the first is that a fundamental part of the Outer Space Treaty, the, the Magna Carta of space law, um, is that no nation may claim territory in, in space, anywhere in space, on any celestial body, by sovereignty, by possession, or by any other means. And so that means that you cannot own anything, own any of the real property in space. So that that is tempered by this concept of um, you know if you not concept sorry the the second precept is that um, anything you a nation launches into space remains the property of that nation. So the objects in space, things like the LEM, remain the property of the United States, even though the the um, site that it is located on cannot be the property of the United States. And then a third concept that comes into the play is this concept of due regard. Um, States must act um, in space with due regard for the activities of other states in space. So arguably, um, the LEM, um, the, the eagle, is owned by the United States, so nobody can take it away. There's no, I have no argument with that. But what does it mean to have due regard for it? It's an inoperable object. It's not classified as an artifact. Um, so what does that mean? Um, it, it, it's, can you go touch it? Well, you know, arguably, no, because the plume effect, the regolith, and, you know, even coming close will do so much damage to it. But we don't know what the distance is for safety at that point. Is it, is it 10 feet? Is it 200 feet? Who knows? And then the site itself. I mean, anybody, any rover can run over those boot prints or other rover tracks um, with impunity. There's nothing under international law that protects the actual sites themselves. It's so important to um, for us to get back to those sites, to let, to let real space archaeologists go back to those sites and see the artifacts where they lay, where they ended up. Uh, we don't want to have things picked up and, um, you know, sold back here on Earth. I know people say, well, you can't do that because the law says you can't. But you know what? 
NASA lost the first bag collected by the first man with the first moon samples. Lost it. You know, so tell me that we're not we're going to be able to keep track of all of these artifacts once it becomes, you know, as, as Bezos says, you know, we, we start having uh, normal routine back and forth. The, the people look at me and say, that's hundreds of years away. It's not hundreds of years away. It's going to be sooner than you think. And it's going to take a long time to create this international law. So we better get started now. So what we want to do is just figure out. We need to work with scientists and engineers. We, we have Dr. Phil Metzger from um, University of Central Florida, uh, a lunar geologist, uh, is on our board because he helped develop the original guidelines. And he'll be the first one to tell you, that, sorry, the NASA guidelines, which are recommendations about how far away you should stay from the sites so that you don't um, ruin them. He's the first to tell you that they had no idea 2011. They were making sh- stuff up. And... Um, and they, those guidelines need to be revisited. And we, with all the new new technology we have, we have to understand how far or how close we can get. As we get um, more technologically advanced, it's going to be easier for us to go back. But we really need to keep things pristine, especially at Tranquility Base. Because if you think about the movie First Man and you think about um, Damien Chazelle getting, you know, lambasted for not showing the flag planting scene. It was such a silly argument because, you know, that's Damien Chazelle can tell the story any way he wants. Anybody can tell the story any way they want. And everyone tells the story in their own way. So even though, you know, we have Buzz Aldrin and we have the a lot of the engineers, they are still seeing that historic event through the lens of their own eyes. We need to we need to see it through the lens of what actually happened, and so you think about Buzz Aldrin tossing the messages of peace over his shoulder. You know that was a last minute thing. Well, where did they end up? Well, we'd learn a lot just by knowing where where it is. Did it end up face up or face down? So we would know. We would learn a lot culturally, also by what was left behind, but we will also learn a lot scientifically. What materials fared the best um, under fifty years of radiation and micrometeorites? So. Keeping things in situ is really difficult legally because, um, as I said, you, you are, your objects are yours, but you can't claim property on, the, on any celestial body. And so the Russian delegate asked us um, at the uh, legal subcommittee meeting, so if you are going to you know, cordon off this site, isn't that declaring property? Well, yeah, it is. <laughs> But you know what? What is the alternative? And and he didn't he, he didn't suggest that we shouldn't. He he. This is what's been really remarkable about for all mankind. Nobody is saying to us you shouldn't or you can't. They're pointing. They're saying this is really hard. What are you going to do about this? What are you going to do about that? Um, and so there's no there's no sort of get you know get out of town. This isn't going to happen. There's a lot of really thoughtful questions. And and he's right. So how are you going to get around that? And that's what we're trying to figure out at For All Mankind. And that's what this new treaty, this convention on the protection of heritage in outer space has to focus on is what are, what are we going to call these new territories that we want to protect? And what does that actually mean for other areas that we're going to want to cordon off for one reason or another, whether it's economic? Now, um, I'm not suggesting that our treaty on the protection of heritage is going to talk about economic zones or anything. I'm suggesting that if we can figure out how to protect our history using this kind of a concept, then maybe we can borrow 
from that to go to the next step, which would be figuring out how, you know, as my son would say, how to own an asteroid, which we know we can't do under the Outer Space Treaty, but, you know, how to figure out how a company can mine an asteroid and extract the resources and, and how that will all work. Wow, that, that's really fascinating. I, I've, I've heard some stories about how people have, uh, over the past history, talked about protecting or, or creating property rights on the moon. Um, and it's really great to hear that people are really open to um, at least property for heritage sites or whether or not you call it property or you call it something else. Um, I'm actually reading a short story collection right now uh, about lunar science fiction since the moon landing. And in one of the stories, um, they talk about how the Apollo 11 site is a UNESCO World Heritage Site in that story's future. Um, is that something that you guys have talked about, is extending um, terrestrial heritage protection um, to the moon and space? Absolutely. And uh, we reached out to UNESCO very early on in our existence. Um, sadly, you know, it's really hard even on Earth, you know, to to figure out what should be a heritage site. The, the key issue with um, the, the World Heritage Convention, which is, I guess, administered by UNESCO, if you will, um, is that you can only nominate a site within your territory. So a nation can only nominate a site within its territory. Um, so since you can't have territory in outer space, no nation can nominate a site. So the general counsel to ESA, Marco Ferrazano, said, well, then have every country in the world nominate the site. <laughs> I said, Marco, that's a great idea. Good luck. <laughs> um, but yeah, the, you know, and, and it's very difficult even on Earth because there are some sites that two countries claim, you know, in territory that two, di two different countries claim. But we need to move away from the, the sovereign paradigm um, as, as we explore space. Uh, and, and that's really a fundamental issue that, that we're dealing with. And one that is, I think, probably the hardest sell at this point is we, we can't keep relying on sovereignty you know, we've got to look at a different kind of structure for space. And the World Heritage Convention, you know, World Heritage Convention is phenomenal. It has 193 nations have ratified it. So what's really heartening about that is as difficult as it is, as as, as many arguments as there may be about um, whose territory a particular site is in, 193 nations have agreed that preservation of history is important. And it's important from a human standpoint. You know, they, they are... All of these sites that are considered World Heritage Sites are recognized for their universal value to humanity. And so those concepts we want to borrow and take to space with us, absolutely. But we, can, we need to leave the sovereignty concept behind. So let's move to our final portion, our sort of lightning round of advice. Um, what advice would you give to someone who is pre-law or pre-graduate school that wants to get involved? So still in college, come and volunteer for For All Mankind. No, <laughs> you can do that too. <laughs> we need help. Now, I think that, um, you know, th there are um, the National Space Society, things that you wouldn't think of. There are, there are so many ways to get involved 
Um, and sadly, space is not that popular. So if you can uh, get get hooked into um, or start a local chapter of the National Space Society, if you can find um, you know a space policy group at, in your college, um, you will get people. Um, people like me would be delighted to come and talk um, about space and start start helping you network. Um, frankly, uh, you know, people laugh, but I, you know, join LinkedIn. Uh, I think everybody in the space community, if you're a student and and you link in with us, we'll we'll link in with you. We'll answer questions. I mean, we might not answer immediately, um, but we will definitely um, want to be in contact and and help you as much as we can. You know, space is, is really a burgeoning um, business, and it's really important to get into it and understand it as early as possible. Take as, as many um, courses as you can in terms of public international law, public policy, because space law is ultimately an international law, um, because everything we do domestically um, is to, uh, to meet our international obligations. Um, and, and just, you know, read, educate yourself about things like remote sensing. Um, it's, there's a lot of stuff out there. Um, it, I will, I mean, I'll do a plug for um, Jeff Faust's email. You get a daily email about, about what's going on in space. I think it's phenomenal. And Politico does one um, weekly. And they're both, you know, everything you ever want to know um, is right there. You don't have to read every single one, but you'll learn a lot about what's going on. And you'll learn pretty quickly what interests you the most about space. All right. And then what about current law students and graduate students? Their coursework and their course loads are very heavy. They have to be very careful with what they spend their time on. Do you have any advice uh, specifically for that time period in their lives, how to stay involved, get involved, or how to develop their opportunities for after they get out of school? So I think, you know, when you're in law school or graduate school, you're, you're doing a lot of research um, and, and it may not necessarily be, you know, there's only there's only two space law programs in the U.S., Nebraska and Mississippi. We don't need to talk about which one's better. No, they're both they're both phenomenal. They've both been on the podcast. They are both phenomenal. And and um, and thank God for both of them. Right. Yeah. Um, the. Um, what's important and what I think would is we really need to see more of is bringing space into the curriculum of, of other, um, of, uh, into other curriculums. So, you know, if you are, if you are in graduate school and, and, and doing an economic, I don't know, an economics or something, talk about space, everything, I guarantee everything we do on earth has a space aspect to it. And if it doesn't, it probably should. So, for example, if, you know, um, I was talking to a graduate student um, at, Mrs. at uh, Delta State University um, who is using remote sensing data to track, uh, you know, coyotes across the plains. Um, I said, oh, you know, when did, when did you start doing that? Well, he didn't even know what remote sensing was until he was 24. So that's just tragic. You know, I, I think you got to really, we've got to, educate people from the beginning, from kindergarten, about how much space is, is how much we use resources in space. But um, so, yeah, I would say if you're not in a, in a space uh, related course, bring space into your course, figure out a way to um, write your thesis um, with, with a space aspect or, you know, in every class, challenge yourself to figure out how you can work space into it. 
um, you know, any, um, as far as uh, JDs go, you know, I think it's really important. You want, if you want to think about what you want to do as a space lawyer, um, do you want to uh, advise startups or do you want to go and try and get a job at State Department um, and work on policy? Do you want to be an academic? If you want to um, advise space startups, then take business law, take um, take admin law, you know, take contract law, take take the meat and potatoes, um, and and so that you can do that, and then and then go and and work for two or three years at a at a law firm or in a, in a general counsel's office and learn the basics because every every business needs those basics, whether it's space business or or not. Um, so yeah, I would I would say. Um, you stay involved by by reading the right um, material um, when you can. Just looking at the headlines, and of course, you know. Um, and then uh, it's it is difficult to volunteer, um, but always, always uh, weave space into your curriculum yourself. And then you uh, are are one of our handful of guests who can really speak to the last piece of advice. What advice would you give to someone who is already? a working professional, somebody who has already been out of school and has been working in a different practice for a while, how can they begin to transition or look into changing their practice to focus on uh, space law? Well, absolutely. You know, I did it at the age of 50, so anyone can do it. Um, I, you know, you, you can take all of that experience and it's vital to the space industry. Um, and, and, you know, we really need um, mid-level, upper-level professionals um, to focus on space. And the best way to do that, and, you know, I, I'm going to plug the LLM at, at Mississippi. I got my LLM at McGill. Um, but getting that getting that uh, Master of Laws certificate, it, it gives you a, a year. Just take a breather. Take a year off um, if you can, or, or do it at night. You know, you can do it online. Um and, and immerse yourself in aviation and space law. It's a lot of fun. So yeah, it sounds like it's going to be a pain in the ass and it's going to take a lot of time. But if you if you can take a year off and, and do it, then absolutely go immerse. If you can only do it at night, we have a bunch of LLMs who come in online. You know, you can take one class um, a term or you can take two or three, whatever you can bear. Um, and it's, it is um, really invigorating, I think, to um, expose yourself uh, to all of the, the fundamentals of aviation and space law. And, and again, we really need you. And it's really what, what experienced professionals bring to the table um, in terms of both to the classroom um, and to the industry, to the space industry, is incomparable. Um, so if you are a working professional and you have an interest in space, then, then please reach out. And um, and we can figure something out, but we we need you and we need your experience because we are going to space and everything we do here on Earth, we we need to do in space. Well, I think I think that's a great note to end on. We need you. We are going to space. Michelle, where can people find out more about For All Moon Kind, and where can people find out more about the University of Mississippi program? Thank you. So um, we are at uh, forallmoonkind.org.org. So again, it's moonkind, not mankind, forall, 
moonkind.org is our website. Also, please follow us on Facebook and Twitter and LinkedIn. Um, And then the the Center for Air and Space Law is um, the easiest way to get there is to do um, olemisslaw.edu. And you'll learn all about our programs. We have a uh, we have a certificate program for non-lawyers. So if you are not a lawyer but you are interested in, in learning about aviation and space law, you can come and um, spend a year with us either online or in person and get a certificate of um, air and space law. Um, and we also have the LLM, of course. And uh, Mississippi uniquely has a JD concentration in air and space law as well. Um, and you can uh, learn all about that online or email me directly um, M L Hanlon, H A N L O N, at olmiss.edu. So M L Hanlon at olmiss.edu. Well, Michelle Hannon, thank you so much. Thank you, Nathan. I really appreciate your time. listening to the Astro Esquire podcast. For more information about this episode, visit our website at astroesq.com and check out our Patreon page to subscribe for access to bonus content. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, please leave us a review on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen. The Astro Esquire podcast is hosted and produced by Nathan Johnson. Our theme music was composed by Kevin Bloom. Bloom.